Right now on Matter of Fact, first-time home buyers watch as their American dream slips away. You have to make this much money, you have to have this down payment, and we checked every single box. But we actually got a, um, a rejection. What's the real cost to the nation when America's next generation can't build wealth? Plus, a rare in-depth survey looks at how most voters think democracy should work. We're seeing this progressive tilt that is exhibited amongst the youngest Americans. At some point, we're going to have a generational reckoning. But first... Another wave of police violence puts pressure on police and politicians to do something. We have to come together. One city's zero shots fired record could lead the way. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Not a single shot fired by police in 2020. This sounds impossible, but the officers in Newark, New Jersey, were able to do it. How? Well, the Justice Department's 2014 investigation into the Newark Police Department revealed widespread brutality and racism within the department. To turn things around, the police department hired more black and brown officers, improved training programs, and required more paperwork after an officer used force. A lot of the efforts were modeled after a city less than two hours away. Camden, New Jersey. That's where the mayor and the city council dissolved their police department and rebuilt a countywide force. As calls for police reform escalated in 2020, I spoke to Scott Thompson, who's the former police chief of Camden, New Jersey, about how those changes could be a blueprint for other cities. Chief Scott Thompson, thank you for talking with me. You were the police chief during the reforms, a Camden undertook a complete overhaul of their department. Everybody was fired, in including you. Describe for me what that overhaul looked like. I had been a police officer for 20 years at that point in time. I'd been a police chief for five, but I was a new employee. And so with that, that, what that really uh, provided the opportunity for was the, was the ability to build culture versus the challenge of changing culture. And a lot of it was because we no longer had to deal with uh, overly restrictive uh, existing work rules from the other organization. We had a, a, a union at the time that was that stood as an impediment to any type of progress or reform. They were guardians of the status quo. Um, and conversely, when we went into the new organization, they still organized. They became union. Same union, just different leadership. Was it a very difficult maneuver to move people in thinking about how they would do their job differently or move the community from how they should look at policing differently? What we focused on with identity, that what we were looking for were the traits of, uh, and, and the identity of, of reflecting more with a member of the Peace Corps than being a special forces operator for the United States military. Uh, we were not going to go in and militarize neighborhoods. We were going to work with people. When you hear about the defund the police movement, what does that mean to you? I, I don't think that if that conversation starts there, I don't know how you really start to move forward. Um, you have to have police. There has to be some form of government that can intersect with really bad people when they're doing really bad things. Um, 
And I'll tell you, too, uh, what I have learned is that in your most challenged communities, the people in there, they want police. They need police. They just want them to behave differently than what they traditionally have been. What would you say to police officers who would say, we're the ones being vilified, we're the ones being wronged? Look, I, I think that uh, my biggest fear in this is that policing as an institution and its leadership will circle the wagons and will cross our arms and will become defensive. Look, at the end of the day, you've got to be empathetic with what the world saw on that video and understand that there, there is going to be an emotional reaction to that. The people have the right to say these things, whether we like to hear it or not, right? And the worst thing we can do in this moment is to close our ears and just ignore what's being said. And if, if, if we refuse to have any type of negotiation or, or conversation with the community in this, you know, that, that, that's just not going to end. Scott Thompson is a former police chief in Camden, New Jersey. Nice to talk to you, sir. Thank you. Coming up on Matter of Fact. My parents definitely did the best that they could, but they wasn't able to have a job that's any better than like um, a minimum wage job. Is the American dream of home ownership out of reach for families without generational wealth? Plus, the history of the Kentucky Derby you may not know. Black men won more than half of the first 25 runnings of the Derby. Stay with us. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. In recent weeks, we've reported on GOP-backed efforts in 24 states to pass more restrictive voting laws. The bills aim to tighten absentee and mail-in voting, impose stricter ID requirements, and cut back on early voting. It appears public opinion, especially among young Americans, is not in sync with most of those efforts. While there is support for voter ID, a new University of Massachusetts Amherst WCVB poll finds that most Americans disapprove of placing too many restrictions on voting. Tatish Natetta teaches political science at UMass Amherst and also is the director of the UMass Poll, a collaboration with our Hearst station in Boston, WCVB. Professor Tatish Natetta, nice to talk to you. Thank you for being with me. Will you give me a little background on this poll, um, kind of what were your goals going in? Yeah, so we were primarily interested in seeing where Americans were 100 days into the Biden administration. I'm curious if there was anything from this poll that stood out to you and surprised you or shocked you. We found uh, quite a bit of uh, belief, particularly among Republicans, that Joe Biden was not the legitimately elected president of the United States. And so that was the central shocking finding. As it pertains to election reform, we found quite a bit of support, broad support for policies that ease the cost associated with voting, that make it easier for folks to turn up on election day and to exercise their right to vote. We found broad support for policies like same-day registration, automatic registra registration, making election day a holiday, uh, making mail-in voting permanent. And this is strong majorities across demographic groups, among men and women, among the highly educated, the less educated, uh, young people, older Americans, all racial groups. In your state, Massachusetts, you don't need an ID to vote, but it seems like the data was a little bit more mixed when it came to uh, voter ID issues. 
And we found across demographic groups that people see this in some ways as a common sense uh, solution to issues potentially of voter fraud. So we saw majorities of folks supporting uh, voter ID uh, requirements in states. And this is true, and this is what was relatively surprising among the groups that are said to be most affected by voter ID laws, young people and people of color. Majorities of both support voter ID laws. Were you surprised by this idea of, of how people, the, the poll respondents, thought about fraud? And what we find is that Americans are of two minds. On one hand, they want to make people turn out to vote on Election Day. They want high levels of participation. But as you said, they're extremely concerned about voter fraud. And what we have found as political scientists is that there's very little actual evidence of widespread voter fraud. But given the rhetoric of prominent Republicans, given the support in particular media outlets for the perception that voter fraud is widespread, this has um, trickled down to the American public. And this is one of the issues that they really are concerned about. In fact, they're willing to uh, attack voter fraud, even if it makes it more difficult for Americans to turn out to vote. Talk to me about younger people. What were some of the issues and concerns that, that they cared about that you thought were different than older people? Younger people were more likely to support uh, reparations being paid to African-Americans. Younger people were more likely to support uh, statehood for Washington, D.C., as well as Puerto Rico. As it pertains to election reform, younger people are much more supportive of these reforms that attempt to make voting easier in the United States. And so we're seeing this progressive tilt that is exhibited amongst the youngest Americans, at least the youngest voting age Americans uh, in the United States. And going forward, it'll be interesting to see um, what impact that has on state-level politics and on national politics. Professor Natetta, nice to talk to you from UMass Amherst. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You bet. Next on Matter of Fact. We've moved probably like maybe 10 times in the past 10 years, seven to 10 times. Looking for a place to call home. Meet the generation that wants to put down roots and feel like they belong. And later, is everyone moving to Texas? What the U.S. Census tells us about the latest migration to the Lone Star State. To stay up to date with our top stories, sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe at matteroffact.tv. Before the pandemic, a Gallup poll found that 70% of Americans believed the American dream was achievable. Nearly a third of the country felt the dream was out of reach. Then, COVID-19 changed almost everything. The housing market is tighter than ever, supply is low, prices are high, and that means affordable housing is less available, and first-time buyers are facing unprecedented challenges. My name is Bailey Jeremy. I am a mental health therapist, and I live in Harlem. I've been thinking about buying a home. Uh, it feels like forever, honestly. My name is Rebecca Sen, and I've been the executive director for the New York Mortgage Coalition for five years. People see owning a home as an avenue to build wealth, as their largest asset, and it's still the American dream today. My name is O'Neill Edwards. Um, from Brooklyn, New York, and I'm 27 years old. We moved probably like maybe 10 times in the past 10 years, seven to 10 times. My parents definitely did the best that they could, but due to external factors, they wasn't able to have a job that's any better than like um, a minimum wage job. So like the dream of home ownership 
is very important to us, but it was like, it seemed very impossible for like a period of time up until recently. I'd say we're in one of the most competitive homeownership and housing markets I've ever seen. We serve over 15,000 people a year. We work with a host of affordable mortgage lenders who offer sometimes 3% down. And even coming up with that can be tough on top of closing costs, which could be 10,000 plus. It's a complicated process. There's a lot that goes into it. It's very stressful especially being a middle-class family. I learned that there was affordable housing option two blocks away from our apartment. So it felt very unbelievable. They say you have to apply now, you have to make this much money, you have to have this down payment. And we checked every single box. We were very excited. We told our daughter, we we're like, we're just gonna move two blocks away. You know, make sure you're thinking about it and you're planning for your new bedroom. And shortly afterwards, I think in December, we actually got a, um, a rejection. The process of applying to this apartment started to feel like uh, a numbers game. We were just another number. I'm accepting that this uh, condo may not be the place that we can live in, but I'm still hopeful that Harlem is an option for us. I started attending a class by the Harlem Congregation. That class really taught me all the steps that I needed to take. I just continued to live beneath my means and save as much money as possible from my income until I got to a point where I had enough for a down payment for a property. I live on the third floor with my girlfriend and on the second floor we're going to get that rented out to a tenant and on the first floor I decided to give that um, floor for, to my parents. It just gives me a, a, a great sense of pride, like this is where I struggle. This is where I move from one place to another. And the fact that um, I purchased the property at 26, that's a huge deal. It just gives me a, a, a sense of like, this is where I belong because I own real estate here. And I can genuinely say this is my community. This is where I'm from. This is where I belong. Home ownership is synonymous with the American dream. Recently, as part of our Matter of Fact listening tour, I asked two experts to weigh in on economic mobility. I spoke to Valerie Wilson of the Economic Policy Institute's program on race, ethnicity, and the economy, and to Edgar Villanueva, an enrolled member of the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina, a philanthropist and the author of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. Edgar, I'm going to start with you, if I may. What is, in your mind, the American dream? What, is it, what does it mean? And has that definition changed over the years? I think the American dream is an aspiration. It is, it is a hope that uh, one day we all can uh, be equal, have equal opportunity, access, and thrive. Um, I do think, however, that the American dream is a dream deferred. Um, it is really relegated to um, identity and place. And so all of us are not uh, equally benefiting from the opportunity to achieve this dream. Valerie, do you think the dream is deferred or the dream is real? I think the American dream is and has always been central to our uh, national identity in the United States. Uh, it definitely is a motivating and driving factor in capitalism. <laughs> so it's essential to fueling our economy, but it is in fact elusive uh, for a significant share of the population. Uh, I think when we look at the uh, rise of, of economic inequality over the last uh, 40 to 50 years, 
then it's obvious for a growing share of the population and disproportionately in communities of color, uh, achieving that American dream has gotten much more difficult. And of course, Valerie, historically, the acquisition of wealth was very unequal. One of the ways that we continue to see uh, the wealth gap um, continue is through disparities in inheritance, the ability to be able to pass on wealth. And so it does go far beyond a single generation uh, and continues, you know, across generations. And, and as we have seen in the last several decades, that gap has expanded. You can see the rest of our conversation on the American dream by going to matteroffact.tv. It's part of our recent listening tour special to be an American identity, race, and justice. Next on Matter of Fact, well, howdy, partner. A new migration means tens of thousands of Californians are getting a big Texas welcome. Why are so many people on the move? This week, we got our first look at the U.S. Census and what it means for Congress and our cultural landscape. The big winner, Texas, picking up two seats in the House of Representatives. A surprise loser was California, dropping one congressional district with 40 million people. The Golden State is still the most populous, but this is the first time in history it lost ground, and much of it to Texas. The net migration from California to Texas in the past two years is about 50,000 people. What's behind the move to the Lone Star State? Well, first, COVID-19, remote work gave people choices about where to live. Colorado, North Carolina, Oregon, Montana, Florida, and Texas all grew. Census figures show a link between increasing home prices in California and the trend toward Texas. And finally, California companies like Oracle, HP, and Charles Schwab moved to Texas, and people followed their jobs. It's too early to know who benefits, Republicans or Democrats. Experts say people don't switch party affiliation, they just change their address. Coming up. The Run for the Roses is part of our Americana. We'll tell you about the former slaves who made it to the winner's circle. Finally, this weekend is the running of the Kentucky Derby, which made us investigate Derby history. In the 19th century, former slaves were both jockeys and trainers. In fact, black men won more than half of the first 25 runnings of the Derby. Jim Crow laws of the 1890s put an end to that. But not before Isaac Burns Murphy rode into the history books. Between 1884 and 1891, Isaac Murphy won three Kentucky Derbies, a record that was held till 1945. Murphy had been born a slave in Kentucky and competing as a jockey won him prize money and status. When Murphy bought a new house, that story made the front page of the New York Times. Murphy's third and final win at the Derby came in 1891. He rode Kingman, a racehorse owned by a former slave, Dudley Allen. Allen was the first and only black man to own a Derby winning horse. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and we'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about Newark, New Jersey police reforms that cut crime without firing a single shot, a new survey revealing how young Americans would change the way democracy works, and a ground-level look at first-time homebuyers pushing toward their American dream in these unprecedented times, you can find them at matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider.
Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.